What causes mental illness and what can we do to reverse the symptoms of mental illness? That is the topic of today's discussion, episode 13 of the Be Yourself and Love It podcast. Part of this was taken from a live stream that I did on Facebook, which was quite popular, and I've also added some additional information and material, which you might enjoy if you've already caught the live stream on Facebook or on my YouTube channel. Here goes. What causes mental illness? Now, this might be striking as a highly controversial and subjective live feed. Thank you for joining me. It is not to be a substitute for consulting your physician if you are suffering from this. It is not intended as medical advice. Here is my account through my experience and research of what causes mental illness. And it is going to fly in the face of a lot of accounts which I hold you responsible for comparing my account to uh, and drawing your own conclusions from in the fact that I do not accept the proposition that mental illness is caused by a so-called chemical imbalance in the brain. I will put my cards on the table and say, I do not believe that. You can draw your own conclusions. I would say, on the contrary, the chemical imbalance in the brain is caused by the mental illness. You can listen to my account and draw your own conclusion. Now, my account is this. This organism that we are, that you are, that I am, is geared mostly towards the survival of the organism. Human life begins when the physiological needs are met. Animal life ends when the physiological needs are met. So a cat or a tiger or any animal you can think of, maybe some of the higher primates do not fall in this category, but basically if they've got a full belly, they're happy, they're okay, they're happy to take a nap, their life is complete. Everything that we consider a higher faculty for a human being begins when we've got a full belly, shelter and so forth. That's when science begins, that's when art begins, that's when fulfilling relationship begins, that's when self-reflection begins and so forth. So this organism is on the bottom level an animal but we have higher faculties built on top of that. But fundamentally, this organism, um, quite apart from what your conscious mind might think, is primarily focused on survival. Human beings are unique in that they have uh, unprecedented power to change their environment. However, when you're a child, you do not have the power to change your environment. Humans are expert at adapting to environment. That's why we are on every single continent on the planet. We can adapt ourselves to our environment. And when you're growing up, you have no control over the environment that you grew up in. Therefore, you revert to the animal, the most primitive part of the brain back here, the medulla oblongata, and you adapt yourself to the environment. So if you are in an environment 
where there is a lot of anxiety, a lot of tension and so forth, you will adapt to that environment and adopt a strategy which will help you as an organism survive that environment which you do not have the power to change. When you grow up, all your adaptations do not necessarily turn themselves off. That will take a conscious effort on your part. Now, I'm talking a lot of philosophy here, so I should probably get down to some examples. So as an adult, if you're an assertive person, that's very much going to help you get ahead in life. You'll get better jobs. You'll be able to make your needs known in relationships, and you will attract the kinds of relationships to you which will meet your needs. If you're not very assertive, if you're a people pleaser, you will often find that people walk all over you and so forth. Now, that might not seem very adaptive as an adult, but as a child, you never know if you're going to be called cheeky or rude or fresh or even be punished for being assertive and making known your needs. So you learn to can it. And then later on, you're told that you have low self-esteem because the strategies that your brain, not just you, but your brain, your physiology adopted, do not turn themselves off. You might have found that when you were young, as soon as you were expressing excitement or your energy got high, you were punished or you were put down or you were told not to get so excited or you were, your happiness triggered the people around you. So you learned to keep your physiology learned to keep your mood low in order to avoid punishment or negative consequences for being happy. Your whole physiology is a soup. All your emotions are based on physiological reactions that are cooked up inside you. So your brain learned to cook up some negative emotions to avoid attention, to avoid negative attention, to avoid punishment. Now you are told that you suffer from depression. You are exceedingly self-critical. Why are you incredibly self-critical? Well, it could be because when you were growing up, you had people around you in the environment that criticized you heavily, thinking they were trying to help you to change your behavior and adapt your behavior to what's acceptable or what would be good for you. And you learn to anticipate what they might criticize you for by internalizing a strict inner critic who would try and protect you from them by criticizing you for what they might criticize you for before you do it. Now, your mind is incredibly overactive because you need to take account of everything that might go wrong the same way as when you were growing up. Oh, shoes must be out of the hallway. The window upstairs needs to be closed. Oh, must make sure the dog's at the back door and so forth and so forth on this can create quite an overactive mind and uh, definitely overthinking a lot of people get accused of doing that these days and that could be adaptive to a childhood environment that you don't have much choice over but it could be experienced as extremely limiting as an adult if you were surrounded by anxious people growing up it's very likely that if you were not anxious mirroring their emotions they would think that you were not taking it seriously. And in order to avoid that punishment, as a child, you don't have the communication skills or techniques to be a counsellor for your, for the adults around you and help them become less anxious. So in order to merge in and become just like everyone else around you, your brain cooked up the emotions of anxiety and got used to 
producing anxiety. And then you get told when you're growing up that you've got an anxiety disorder, which is a consequence of a chemical imbalance in the brain. Now, I would suggest that your anxiety is not caused by a chemical imbalance in the brain, but the chemical imbalance in the brain is caused by your anxiety. Uh, you might become highly sensitive because your best defense against criticism was to go into a rage. And your brain learned to cook up the emotions of fight. You've all heard of the fight or flight response, actually the fight, flight or freeze response. You found that the most adaptive response to avoid punishment in your environment was to get highly emotional, strung up and deter attackers by becoming more vicious than them. Then when you grow up, you're told that you've got borderline personality disorder because as soon as anyone steps on your feet or pushes your buttons, you go into a rage. Is that because you've got a chemical imbalance in the brain? Is that because you're mentally ill? Or is that because an attack was to be the attacker, to instantly go into defensiveness and scare people off attacking you by becoming the attacker. This is down to your discretion to decide. I'm not saying that this is the final word on the matter. I'm just saying that this is a theory that you can take into your mind and into your heart and see if it matches your experience or if you believe in the prevalent view, which is that your mental illness is caused by a chemical imbalance in the brain. Now that I've talked about all of these things, I should just say a little bit about trauma and the physiology of tra trauma, and then we're going to get into some solutions. So uh, I've got a comment here from Simmer Eve. To be honest, I've thought exactly this for a long time. From where I can see it going, most people's childhoods are tragic. I found this useful. I'm just about to get into some solutions and things like that, but please pump the share button. Share this on your way but I would also like to reach new people. So hit that share button and let other people know if you think this is useful. So the physiology of trauma. Robert Scare, leading world expert on trauma, a traumatologist, believes that all pathologies are caused by trauma. All of them. You can make up your own mind. And he explains that what happens when the organism, the body, experiences a trauma, which he defines as any situation which you perceive as life-threatening, doesn't necessarily have to be life-threatening, but you perceive it as life-threatening, and you experience that in a state of helplessness. If you could run away, you'd run away. If you could fight, you'd fight, etc. If you experience helplessness, and a perceived threat to your life, there's a good chance your brain will suffer a trauma. Now, what happens is the brain reacts to that trauma, but it doesn't unreact from that trauma. That will take a co an act of conscious volition. And the reason for that is because your brain doesn't care about your quality of life. It only cares that you have life. It only cares that you survive the trauma. So after the trauma is suffered, your brain goes, well, that's obviously a useful strategy that helped me survive the trauma. So therefore, that's a good strategy. And I'm going to adopt that for the rest of my life, unless you make a change. So this has been demonstrated in experiments. For example, they can give a rat a mini stroke. And within a day's time, the blood vessel which they burst has regrown and physiologically there's nothing wrong with its brain, but maybe it's lost the function of its eyes or of its front limbs. 
even though there's nothing physiologically wrong with those body parts, it just can't use them because the brain has reacted to the trauma and not unreacted. So how do we reverse that? That is the critical question. Well, you can look up trauma release exercises. They're extremely uh, effective. I've used them myself and I've taught them to some of my clients, although I'm not uh, trained to do that. I've just pointed them out and sent them in the, the direction of resources on that. Um, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy works for some people. I'm not a huge fan of it. I don't use it with my clients. I've not found that it's worked for me, but some people uh, claim that it works for them. Talking therapy in which you are subjected to the experience of some of the emotions from that trauma, which you've not fully integrated before, but you're allowed to do it in a controlled way that doesn't overwhelm you. You go through those emotions, you re-experience them with support, and after you've experienced them, some of that uh, effect can be released. That is very effective, And but I would just say a word on that. When you experience that, you should not allow the emotion to flood you so you get overwhelmed with it, because if you do that, you can re-traumatize yourself. You're only meant to allow the emotions to arise in the measure which you can de deal with and at the pace you're meant to deal with it. Otherwise, it can be completely overwhelming and can actually be detrimental. Um, so you've probably heard of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. People come from back from a war or something like that and they're a complete changed person. They've got a fiery temper which they didn't used to have and so forth. There's also something called complex PS PTSD which is not necessarily caused by one traumatic event, but a series of small traumatic events over a large course of time which really set the relays in your brain. They keep on reinforcing one another until you act a different way. And I think that pretty much everyone is suffering from PTSD. That's my personal opinion, is suffering from PTSD to a smaller or larger degree in the society we have because this information is not that well known. EFT, I've heard, I've not used it personally, but I've heard it can be very effective for some people in uh, overcoming trauma. And of course, um, seeing a traumatologist, trauma therapy, therapy for grief. Now our practice called somatic experiencing is becoming increasingly popular and it relieves the symptoms of PTSD and other mental and physical trauma related health problems. By focusing on your body sensations, it creates awareness and helps release the physical tensions that remains after experiencing trauma and it helps the brain learn to regulate itself better. It helps you slow down and you discharge all the tensions from the body. You're basically training the nervous system to calm down and come back down to earth. And if you can find a somatic experiencing practitioner in your city or, or you can travel to see one, you can go for half a dozen sessions, then you can, you can practice on your own. This was um, created by the trauma therapist Peter Levine and you can check out his work and more about somatic experiencing on YouTube. And also EMDR or eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. <laughs> what a mouthful. That's a form of psychotherapy developed by Francine Shapiro and it's an evidence-based trauma therapy. 
it holds a similar view to me that sufficiently traumatic or distressing experiences overwhelm the normal coping mechanisms and then the memory associated with those stimuli are not processed properly and they're stored in the in the nervous system so EMDR is aimed to reduce the the lasting effects of distressing memories by engaging the brain's natural adaptive information processing mechanisms to relieve symptoms and usually the client will be asked to recall some of the distressing material and while they do that they'll be instructed in how to move their eyes to retrain the central nervous system. You can find out if there's an EMDR practitioner in your city or near where you live. One thing that I suggest to everyone, whether you want to go for more professional help or not, is to journal three pages every day. Set, uh, start your practice every day. It doesn't matter when you do it. It doesn't matter if you do it in the morning or the evening. Set some time aside, 15 minutes, to write three pages in your diary and write about all the experiences, what's going on in your head, what you're feeling, just to help you process that and integrate that and get you on top of yourself so that anything, so that you're getting rid of the accumulated storage of emotions. And that means that anything you're dealing with, the past or what you're going through right now, you've discreetly uh, dealt with to some degree, which leaves your mind freer to deal with the present moment. Of course, if you want to see a professional, a therapist or a coach, I certainly recommend my services, but you don't need to book me. I think that most people could benefit from talking to someone and make sure you choose someone who comes highly recommended, not through, not necessarily through the NHS or the official channels, although I'm sure there's good people working through those channels, but you know, what you get put with is essentially a roll of the dice. Choose someone who comes highly recommended uh, from people you know or someone that you know knows who can say, this person really helped me turn my life around and change my life. If you would like to see me, um, you can email me at anthony at beyourselfandloveit.com and you can send me a little email telling me what you're facing, what your symptoms are, what you think you'd like to be like and I will do a preliminary session with you and we can decide if we'd be a good match and I'd be able to help you or not. I would like to see people a lot happier than they are with a lot less... Um, involuntary emotions, anxiety, depression, um, and so forth, just coming out of nowhere. Why am I feeling depressed? Why am I feeling, why am I feeling anxious? Well, maybe your organism, your body, learned that that was the best way to deal with a situation that you didn't have much control over. And maybe you know your brain needs to be retrained to learn to cook up a different chemical soup and yeah, I definitely recommend you get along to an exercise class, do some yoga, uh, get into your body, stretch out all the tensions. If you've got tight hamstrings, if you've got tightness in your body, that is a good indication that your body has reacted to a trauma and is still storing those tensions and hasn't managed to release them yet. 10 or 15 stre minutes stretching every day would significantly, in my opinion, 
my highly subjective opinion, uh, reduce stress and symptoms of mental illness from most people. If you carry a lot of tension in your body, if you don't have flexibility in your body, that's a good indication that your body has reacted to a trauma and hasn't unreacted. And you can stretch those out in the measure that you're able to. Um, if you've got severe symptoms, you might want to go into that cautiously. And to be honest, you might not be in the mood to do it. You might not want to do it because your brain thinks that you being the way you are has helped you survive so far and isn't so keen to make a big change in that direction. So, but just because you don't want to do something doesn't mean that isn't good for you. We all know we could eat better. We all know we could benefit from taking exercises. That doesn't mean we necessarily feel like doing it. So take a cautious approach, try things out. Don't give up too quickly. Don't give up because it still feels crap after a week or two. But don't go from doing nothing to doing shed loads all at once. Build it in. Find a small practice that works for you. And when you've got that into a routine, you can always add something and add something. Please share this video if you think it'll be useful to others. I don't just want to speak to myself. And obviously, if you want to contact me and you want my help, I think that I could be of help and get in touch with me if you think I might be the right person. If you don't, get in touch with someone who you think might be. I know it's hard to put stuff like this on your wall because you think people might judge you. But you know what? You want to find out who the people who are going to judge you for sharing this stuff are and who are the people who are going to go, really great post, thank you for posting that up because they're the people you can be intimate with and have deep and meaningful conversations with. You definitely want more of them in your life. Okay, so after I posted this video, I got a question from someone saying, why do I think that mental illness is so prevalent these days? Is it a symptom of modern civilization? Are people less resilient? Well, those are some pretty huge questions and I'll, I'll try and speak as best as I can to at least cover some of the factors that I think are implicated. For a start, it's not clear that people are more mentally ill today than they used to be, but perhaps our standards of what we consider mental illness have changed. So the world's become a significantly less violent place over the last couple of thousand years. And what was maybe considered the norm in the past in terms of aggressive behavior might be seen as something pathological today. We recognize someone who can't restrain themselves and gets into a fight, uh, we would think that they're, they've got a problem regulating themselves. Whereas in the past, that was just par for the, the course. Or you could project it onto, you know, whatever enemy nation the government was currently at war with in those days and put all your hatred over there. Besides, survival was constantly on the cards because for the most of human history, people lived on $3 a day, except for whatever the rulers, the elites, which were a tiny, tiny percent of the population. Now, somehow or another, you need to just get down the coal mine and make coal happen or farm if you're wanting to put food on the table. And I've already mentioned that our psychological life only really comes awakened when the physiological needs are met. So in the past, you did what your parents did for a living. You lived wherever your parents lived, and then you married whoever your parents said. 
And that was just life. It was hard. It was well accepted. You had nothing to compare it to. And you just got on with it. If you didn't get on with it, then you would die. Either you'd starve to death or you'd get into conflicts or you'd steal and you'd probably end up being executed for that. This doesn't mean that people were of better psychological health. It just means that their focus was narrow. They needed to survive. They didn't need to think about how to create a business or how to choose a partner or where to live or what kind of thing they were going to create for their lives. Their options were very narrow and limited. That's why probably all the literature concerns people who were in upper class families and had major decisions to make about their life. So very little adaptation was needed for the demands of the day. It's now that you've got a whole bunch of choice and that is obviously wonderful but it creates a whole huge psychological life that uh, we don't necessarily have the tools to deal with. We're not born knowing how to make good decisions in all of these areas and so there are some additional stresses that if your mental health is poor then that creates huge strains and huge demands on you. It makes you incapable of conforming to the demands of the modern world and uh, making good decisions for yourself. So it really, really stands out when people have poor mental health or addictions, aggressive behavior, can't handle stress, are so depressed they can't get out of bed. We can't likely look back in time at civilizations like the Incas and the Assyrians who sacrificed children to their gods and think that they had a higher level of mental health than us. If you follow the work of a guy called Lloyd DeMoss, he created a field called Psychohistory. A couple of his books are free online, I believe, The Origins of War and Child Abuse at least is. He's got another one called The Emotional Life of Nations and he charts the improvement in parenting styles all throughout history. The idea that someone would say to their child, what do you want to do with your life and how can I help you be able to do it? That is a 20th century phenomenon. That didn't really exist before that. Before that, um, you were socialized, you were told what to do. Now there are some factors worth considering because throughout most of history, people did physical labor. But if you went out to a farm, and you did the kind of work that was typical for people a few hundred years ago, you would probably conk out after a couple of hours and you wouldn't wake up. Now people's body isn't strong. The average person, not that it's likely to happen in our modern civilization, but that's my point, if a tiger came running after you, you wouldn't be able to climb a tree to get away from it and save your life. If the body cannot protect you, then you are actually likely to be a lot more scared just in general. You're going to have a tendency towards higher levels of anxiety. A lot of people, you know, if they go to the gym or they get in shape, they feel a lot better. It's one of the reasons why, because you're designed to have a healthy, strong body that uh, you can protect and that you can protect your resources with if necessary. The world outside might have changed, but your biology hasn't changed that much. So this is likely to create a tendency towards fearfulness and anxiety. And is one of the reasons why it's really important to get exercise and make your body strong and supple. So you've got the full flexibility and you can use it. And of course, fit so that you don't get out of breath if you go for a quick run. All of these things would significantly improve people's mental health and we can see studies backing this up where you know 20 minutes of exercise is more effective at fighting depression than 
Prozac is. Really, of course, the problem is people who are depressed don't feel like doing some exercise. So ideally, our society would be structured in such a way to help these people come together and provide accountability for one another by doing the same things all together at once at the same time of day. Currently, we're very atomized and the society doesn't provide for facilitating people and connecting and helping one another in that way, but it's not beyond the realms of possibility. I would add to that that because people were doing hard labor every day and we didn't have all the devices and distractions that we do today, they would just spend a lot of time with their thoughts. They didn't have this phenomenon which is widespread where you can't sit in one place without taking your phone out. Yes, for a long time, before smartphones were invented, people couldn't go onto a train or a bus without having to read a newspaper. And that was just the beginnings of this. Carl Jung believed that all neurosis was caused by the avoidance of legitimate suffering. So if you had emotional processes incomplete, you had nowhere near the level of ability to escape from those emotions. You just had to sit with them. You just had to experience them one way or another. Well, I guess you could escape to alcoholism and many people probably did and still do. But largely, people were far more capable of remaining with their emotions because they had no choice but to do it. Now, if people don't think they can handle their emotional experiences, they're not given help to do it by a therapist. They're given psychiatric drugs. And now, I'm not against psychiatric drugs either. I think sometimes they save people's lives. But the difference between the way I see them and the system seems to see them, I do think they're overprescribed, is that the, the system sees them as a way of life. Whereas I would see them as something that you could give someone in a tight spot as a quick pick-me-up or say it was an antidepressant to give them the energy to start doing the things that are going to start helping them in the long term integrating exercise into the routine yoga and some of the trauma therapies that we've discussed i think i'll wrap up there because we've covered a lot there are lots of tools available to help you use your mind to heal your mind now i would suggest that this is probably better done as a two-player game than a one-player game because trying to do it all on your own might be a little bit like trying to stitch your own fingers back on you know you're trying to fix your hands while they're already broken well it would be much much better to have a practitioner who can look from the outside in comes highly recommended has lots of experience they can help you considerably improve your state of mind and begin to reverse the effects of what's been called mental illness but what I would posit is a simple adaptation of this organism to the stresses of your environment while you were growing up which you didn't have much control over and were useful at the time but may now no longer be serving you they might no longer be useful they might actually be holding you back these defenses do not turn themselves off they require intervention from you as a conscious human being to learn new things to retrain your mind and your physiology so that you can access greater levels of happiness and satisfaction in your life if you want to speak to me and see if i can help you you can reach me at anthony at beyourselfandloveit.com and of course until next week be yourself well don't just be yourself be yourself and love it